welcome everybody to our series of conversations between Caleb Morpin and Harpal Bra. We're starting where we left off last time, which is a discussion of the rupture that came between China and the Soviet Union uh, in the period following the death of Stalin and the institution of the Khrushchevite revisionist regime, um, commonly known as the Sino-Soviet split. Uh, and of course, this was a, a rupture that had a huge impact um, not only on China and China's course of development and construction of socialism, but all over the world, the communist movement all over the world was um, massively affected by what happened between China and the Soviet Union and what happened following. So just to give a, a like a little bit of background before I ask Kapal to talk about, you know, Kapal is from the generation who who lived through the, the, the consequences of that in the movement. But just I just want to set the scene a little bit, you know, we had this situation after 1949, uh, when the People's Republic of China was established, that the socialist camp in the world was looking really triumphant. We had these strong leaders, big revolutions in huge countries in the Soviet Union. The, the European revolution had spread across Eastern Europe. Then we had the Chinese revolution. They were all in lockstep, the socialist countries. They helped each other to develop. Uh, and they were in of one accord, uh, or seemed to be ideologically. Um, and then Stalin died, uh, who was clearly the giant of the world movement, you know, not only had been instrumental in the success of the Bolshevik revolution, had then been the leader of the socialist construction in the USSR, and everything that went with that, the incredible titanic achievements, you know, he was the undisputed leader of all of those achievements. And, um, you know, Mao Zedong very much looked to Stalin as a wise guide um, internationally. He was respected by everybody in the international communist movement. Then Khrushchev gave his secret speech, uh, denouncing Stalin uh, on all sorts of ways which were totally trumped up and basically were lifted straight out of Trotsky. Uh, and this speech was published around the world by the imperialists. You know, it's called a secret speech because in the Soviet Union, uh, it was not broadcast to the to the masses, but it was broadcast immediately by the imperialists around the world. It had an instant demobilizing effect on the movement, very demoralizing to think that this person who you thought was such a great leader uh, had had all these qualities and been up to all these nefarious things all along. It was kind of shocking for a lot of people. Um, a lot of people were demoralized and left the movement. Um, Many more, you know, were trying to sort of make sense of it, felt felt very confused. China initially, and Chairman Mao, went along with what Khrushchev had said. They just assumed, you know, everything from the Soviet Union had always been taken on the, on the level of these are our experienced, brilliant revolutionaries. What they tell us is the truth. Um, it took China some years to recognize that the regime in Moscow was no longer um, acting in the interests of the world movement. So, Harpal, if you could um, pick it up from there and, and, and tell us a bit, you know, from the perspective of the world movement, what did this mean? Well, as you have rightly said, Jyoti, Stalin was not only the leader of the Bolshevik party after the death of Lenin, not only was, that, was he the leader in the construction of socialism in the Soviet Union, the defeat of counter-revolutionary... Stop doing the street. Can you stop doing the leg? Um, he, 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 he was not only uh, the leader of the Bolshevik party, he had led the construction of socialism. 
he had led the fight against Trotskyites and Bukharanites and defeated these counter-revolutionaries. He was the leader in the collectivization of agriculture and industrialization of the country and had thus laid the basis for the victory of the Soviet Union against fascism, against Germany, which at that time was the more, most powerful and militarized country in, in, in the world. So that at the end of the Second World War, you know, not only the Soviet Union, but Stalin at his head stood at the pinnacle of his um, achievements and his reputation. And as you rightly said, he was recognized everywhere as the leader of the international communist movement and as the standard bearer of Bolshevism, of Marxism, Leninism. It, it was something really, people had to be around to be able to understand that that was the case. So that was it. And when Khrushchev attacked Stalin, it of course straight away, I mean, number of things. Most important, it not only negated Stalin as a person, but it negated Stalin for all he stood for, whether it be collectivization, whether it be industrialization, and quite honestly, in some of the statements, even though as he stood in the way of Soviet victory in the, in the Second World War, almost wishing that Stalin had been dead earlier. But it wasn't just a personal attack. It also was an attack on the dictatorship of the proletariat because the policies and theories that Christovites came up with obviously negated the dictatorship of the proletariat. In the very same speech at the 20th Party Congress, Khrushchev propagated, floated the idea of the theory of peaceful coexistence. Now, peaceful coexistence is a theory which was brought into existence by Lenin, who after the October Revolution, when the Soviet Union was the only socialist country and was surrounded by imperialist countries, he propounded the theory that, you know, we could live uh, side by side with imperialist countries, we could coexist. But it was never the general line of the proletarian revolution. It was never the general line of the foreign policy of the Soviet Union. It was simply a way of existing in a diff diff difficult period. But the general line of the, com of, the, of, the, uh, of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, subsequently of the Communist International, was cooperation with other socialist parties. It was cooperation after, of course, Second World War with other socialist countries. It was a question of, uh, it was a policy of giving support to the national, national liberation movements. It was a policy of everywhere helping proletarian and national liberation uh, movements. So yes, we coexist with imperialism, but that did not mean that the policy internal and external of the October revolution was to be liquidated. Now Khrushchev's whole policy and a speech really amounted to a liquidation of the road of October. And in doing so, it did considerable harm. It emboldened imperialism, which became extremely arrogant saying, we've been telling you, Stalin was a bloodthirsty monster. Communism does not work. Communism is a horrible system. It kills people. Because Khrushchev was saying, Stalin knew nothing about the Soviet Union. He knew about the Soviet Union from maps that he conducted the Second World War on a globe. You know, the, the, 
a map, map, map if, you, if you like. He was somebody who had cultivated a personality cult of, of his own. Democratic centralism was taken away. Norms of socialist legality were taken away. He violated Leninism and therefore he had to be brought down a peg. But there is a method to his madness. You could not, after the Second World War, after such monumental achievements of socialism, you couldn't say, we want to restore market mechanisms. So the only way that had to be done was to actually bring down and defame the person under whose leadership such achievements had been made, hence his attack on Stalin. An attack on Stalin was an attack on all the achievements of the Soviet Union. It emboldened not only imperialists, it emboldened social democrats who by the end of the Second World War were a totally discredited force as compared with Marxism Lenin. It emboldened counter-revolutionaries from various Trotskyite groups who said, we have always been telling you this is what Stalin was. And now the leader of the Soviet Union is confirming that is, that is the case. Khrushchev was far more dangerous than Bernstein. He was far more harmful than Kautsky. Because Bernstein and Kautsky, although they had reputations and they came from a big uh, communist party and the, the German Social Democratic Labour Party, they came from non-ruling parties. But when somebody who is the inheritor of the mantle of Lenin, and funnily enough of Stalin, is actually denouncing Stalin, then people have to take notice and saying, this is what it is. And the damage that he did to the international communist movement, it has not been repaired up to now. Khrushchev can rightly be called literally the great grave digger of the post Second World War communist international movement. That is what, what, what he did through, through, through his speech. I think for the moment that's enough and we carry on after you to say something. Do you want to come in there, Caleb, or shall I just take the next? Well, I've got a lot to say about that because as someone who's studied very enthusiastically the history of the Communist Party of the United States, you can't just, you know, you know, you can't do anything but just rage at Khrushchev and the damage that he did um, because the American Communist <laughs> Party had been through McCarthyism. <laughs> Uh, the national board had been thrown in federal prison. Uh, the FBI, you know, prevented people from holding jobs. You know, people, I mean, it, it was really bad over here during those years. Uh, you know, if uh, there's a woman I met, uh, one of the one of the experiences I had is I sat in the living room of an 80 year old woman uh, who talked about how she'd been a teacher. And, she, you know, when the steel workers, uh, you know, when the steel mills fired all the workers that were members of the Communist Party, she went and protested outside the plant for the right of steel workers to be members of whatever party they wanted. Uh, the next day, they printed her name uh, along with the names of everyone else and their addresses in the newspaper. She was a teacher. The FBI showed up at her her place of employment and she lost her job. Uh, many people were imprisoned. Over 200 different members of the Communist Party were imprisoned around the around the country simply for being members of the Communist Party. The FBI followed people everywhere. Uh, it was a really horrendous time. And many of the people who had joined during the popular front years, uh, the Roosevelt years, quit. Many of these Hollywood actors and intellectuals quit. But there was a core of people who were loyal to William Z. Foster and the trade union movement, people like Elizabeth Gurley Flynn and Claudia Jones and others who stayed loyal to the party. Um, and so, you know, they were functioning on a semi-underground basis uh, and, and to then have, 
you know, the leader of the Soviet Union uh, tell, you know, come forward and say that all the stuff that that, that this, you know, the ruling class had been saying against the Soviet Union, against Stalin was true. It devastated them because they had suffered so much and they had endured so much. And there had been there was roughly 10,000 people that remained loyal to the Communist Party, despite everything. I mean, if you were a member of the Communist Party, you couldn't you couldn't have a good job. You your life was destroyed. And to have them, you know, to have the leader of the Soviet Union then stab them in the back like that, it, it was devastating. Um, and that also that secret speech was a gesture to the imperialists. And that's the important thing to remember uh, that Khrushchev didn't do it because he just he didn't like Stalin or whatever. It was a message to the imperialists. Uh, we're not revolutionaries like Stalin is. We want to negotiate. We, we, we're, we're, it, was, it was a way to send a message to the imperialists that they were less aggressive because they wanted to have detente. And it led to the policy of, of Khrushchev basically trying to uh, trying to tell the global revolutionary movement, mainly in the third world, uh, to, to cool, cool down, calm down, uh, and and calm down as a favor to the imperialists, in the hope that the imperialists would give détente to the Soviet Union, would give would, would back off, give the Soviet Union more trade deals, etc. Uh, and it was devastating. It was absolutely devastating. Uh, the Supreme Court of the United States knew uh, that this was was a move that made the Communist Party less threatening. In 1957, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the Communist Party was legal in Yates versus the United States, which is their one of their big rulings. And they they made the Communist Party USA legal in response to the secret speech. And they had their 1957 convention uh, where they voted to endorse the secret speech, where they kicked out many great revolutionary leaders uh, who refused to abandon uh, support for Stalin and support for the Black Belt. Uh, which was also abandoned at the 1957 convention. Uh, the black national question was dropped. So yeah, that was the, the Khrushchev secret speech was devastating. And the Communist Party USA has never recovered. It's never been the same organization. Uh, you know, it was it was an organization uh, that when it came back into existence in 1957 with the Supreme Court ruling, um, it was done with the full oversight of the FBI and the American government. It was it was done as a favor to Khrushchev. It's like, OK, this new the new guy Khrushchev's in there. He's not revolutionary like Stalin. You can come back into existence, but your office will be right here and you will not be revolutionary and we will monitor you. And and it, it when the Communist Party USA came into existence legally again in 1957, it was not the revolutionary organization that had once been. Absolutely. And that's a similar story that many people around the world can recount about their parties and their sometimes overnight and sometimes slow disintegration into revisionism under the leadership and the guidance of the Soviet Union. And of course, with the full approval of the glass enemy. And, you know, that's not a small thing, is it? You know, if it turns out you can you can have a party which is respectable, which can exist as an official recognized opposition in a legal situation, you can have deputies in parliaments or councils or whatever, you can have careers and be recognized as a as a part of the official political machinery of the country. You know, that's a situation for a lot of people which is hugely attractive and comfortable. And, uh, you know, we saw that all over the world. We had a slightly different situation in Britain because, of course, um, you know, some revisionism already existed before Khrushchev's speech. There was Tito in Yugoslavia causing a lot of problems in the socialist camp. Britain, uh, our Communist Party, has the um, rather dubious honour of having written its revisionist programme uh, before Stalin died, before Khrushchev made his speech. Um, a very significant <laughs> anti-revolutionary document that they wrote in 1951. Um, 
so it was, you know, that chipping away at the revolutionary base in Britain had already begun. And, um, you know, Khrushchevite revisionism obviously, you know, played into that, reinforced it. Um, our, so the decline of our party was more, more gradual, more kind of step by step. But the logic of that position, you know, destroyed what had been a strong revolutionary movement in our country too, as you know, was happening all over the world. And then, of course, we have that situation where people respond to that by identifying with China, because of course, what happened after a few years of Khrushchev being in charge of the Soviet Union, um, the Soviet Union stopped its aid to China. Paul, can you tell us a bit about how that came about? What happened first? Was it that Mao started to uh, um, have a kind of polemic with with Khrushchev and the and the Bolsheviks or the, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union about what they were what they were doing, what they were saying? Did that happen? Did the did the polemic happen first, or did the withdrawal of the aid happen first? Well, no, the differences as had had really emanated from the Twentieth Party speech, and you said that it took both the Chinese and the Albanians a little while before they realized that it was no point endorsing um, what Khrushchev had said. And of course, each party had of course people who were happy to endorse Khrushchev's speech at the eighth Congress of the Communist Party of China, which happened literally a few months after the, uh, the, um, the, the 20th Party Congress. Um, Deng Xiaoping made a speech in which he endorsed uh, Khrushchev's attacks on the personality cult, etc. And perhaps there is a relationship. Then the Communist Party of China went on to remove references to Mao Zedong thought. It, instead of class struggle, it emphasized that the main contradiction was between the productive forces and, um, and, uh, and, 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 and the desire and the needs of the people to have many more uh, goods and development in the country, etc. And that, that, that was done. And of course, um, the position of the General Secretary, which had been abolished in the 30s, was restored and Deng Xiaoping became the General Secretary. Now that carried on. But of course, in, in China, that situation didn't last long. We, we discussed that last time and I don't want to carry on. There, there was the hundred class movement. There was the anti-rightist campaign, um, and and there was the great leap, leap, leap forward. And eventually, um, uh, we 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 go to the cultural revolution. And so the two things were really parallel. What was happening in the Soviet Union? There was a struggle in in in, in, in China as well. But the Chinese Communist Party, at least overtly stayed together, whatever the differences internally were. And when the polemics were conducted against the Soviet Union, very often the Soviet and the Chinese representatives were either Zhou Enlai or Deng Xiaoping or Liu Shaoqi. Um, and so, so, so that happened. But of course, once the Chinese started taking a position, which was in defense of Stalin, which was a really a red line for Khrushchev, then Khrushchev became extremely nervous because defending Stalin meant defending Stalin's policies, which means opposing Khrushchevite policies. You know, whether or not one opposed imperialism, whether or not one regarded US imperialism as the number one enemy of humanity. 
you know, instead of actually regarding U.S. imperialism as number one enemy, which had been actually agreed by the communist parties at its uh, 57 meeting, which came up with a declaration and subsequently confirmed by the 1960 meeting of communist parties uh, of 81 parties, which came up with a, with a statement where Khrushchev's wrong ideas, most of them, not all of them, were actually removed. Um, and and this, 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 this created problems. And of course, Chinese, and this actually is quite late in the day, in 1960, published an article, Long Live Leninism, yes. which was to celebrate the 90th birthday of V.I. Lenin, in which they defended the position of the, the road of October, the sport for the national liberation movements, the sport for proletarian revolution, the cooperation uh, among socialist parties and hel hel helping each other and imposing imperialism. So that started that. And Khrushchevites, of course, I mean, even before these articles were, were, were published, uh, Khrushchev had become pretty annoyed and he was able to get um, to basically transfer the ideological differences onto state, state level. And Khrushchev was to very shortly um, withdraw the um, so Soviet technicians. Uh, there were hundreds of them in China helping with the socialist construction in, in China. In 1957, an agreement had been made between the Soviet Union and China. The Soviet Union would provide the model for atom, atomic bomb to China and would provide it with the technical data that would help the Chinese to, to, to manufacture it. And in 59, when Christian was in China for the 10th anniversary of the Chinese Revolution, he announces it to the Chinese on the 10th anniversary that we decided not to go ahead with that, 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 that agreement. And he, so, so the relations obviously went, 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 went from bad to worse. But it was too late for Khrushchev to prevent the development of atomic weapons. Very shortly after that, China exploded its, 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 its first um, at, at, at a bomb. Um, the other, other thing that um, ha ha happened, of course, is that Khrushchevites were not happy just to follow a revisionist line. They were able to use their influence to actually pressurize other parties to support that line. And majority, sadly speaking, of the communist parties around the world, A, because of the prestige of the Soviet Union, because of its material resources, went along with Khrushchev. So very few parties supported the Chinese line and one of them was the Party of Labour in, in, in Albania. And as a result, the Albanian party incurred the wrath of Khrushchevites. They, uh, very shortly after that, broke off diplomatic relations with Albania and called for the overthrow of the Albanian leadership. It's unheard of one socialist country going for the overthrow of the leadership of the country. Many people that were suspect in Khrushchev's view were removed from and then their positions. And one of them was Walter Ulbricht for the, of the GDR. He was considered a kind of closet Stalinist. So he, he, was, he was removed 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 from the leadership. And it happened in a number of places. And of course, what Khrushchev was doing had international ramifications. 
Soon after Khrushchev's speech, there, were, uh, there was a big trouble in Poland, which was contained by, by, the, by, the, by the Poles. But there was also the Hungarian counter-revolutionary re rebellion of 1956, which had to be suppressed by the Soviet Union. And according to Chinese documentation, Khrushchev was not willing to suppress it, but he was forced to do it by pressure brought to bear on the Soviet Union by the Communist Party of China and many other fraternal parties that socialist, the socialist revolution in Hungary should not be defeated by the, by the, by the, by the counter-revolutionaries. Counter Everywhere, this nefarious influence of, of course, Khrushchev, um, if you like, uh, spread like, like, like cancer and it hasn't stopped being so up to now. Caleb. I actually want to do something we haven't done in these streams before. I want to show a brief clip um, because this is the leader of the Canadian Communist Party, Tim Buck, uh, and he was asked by the press to describe the differences, uh, to describe what the Sino-Soviet split was about. This was like in 1960, I believe, this clip is from. So it's, it's one minute long. I thought we would just show this clip. So there we go. Conflict between Russia and China. Buck has this happened. And the difference between the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and the Communist Party of China is that the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and the Communist Party of Canada and all the other Communist parties of the world except three or four emphasize strongly that it is the main line of advance that we've got to strive for. The main line of advance, the maintenance of peace and the winning of the population of the world to the idea of settling issues by peaceful competition. Whereas the Communist Party of China considers that uh, as a means of making sure that we don't make too many concessions to capitalism and to the imperialist states, we should not flinch away from a little war here or a little war there if we're challenged by the imperialists. Now there is a difference. There is a difference. It's an important difference. But it's like so many of the differences that we've had in our own party and which continually arise in every political movement. It's a difference of emphasis in the application of a general line agreed upon. So I just thought that might be an interesting clip to kind of, you know, give perspective on, uh, on, you know, he was a supporter, obviously, of the Soviet revisionist line. He was the leader of the Canadian Communist Party. And he the way he characterized it was that uh, that the Canadian Communist Party, the Soviet Communist Party, was just emphasizing the need for world peace, uh, whereas as the Chinese were not as committed to it. Um, I guess I would ask uh, Harpal how you react to Tim Buck's characterization of the disagreement at the time. Well, the Tim Buck, of course, is following the diktat from 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 and really they live in a cloud cuckoo land. And for example, Khrushchev, when Khrushchev talked of peace, Khrushchev talked of the leaders of the United States imperialism from Eisenhower to Kennedy and people of peace who are working all day for peace. And by cooperating together, we can build, bring about a world which not only lives peacefully and happily ever afterwards, but also we can have complete disarmament under the condition, conditions of imperialism. And what the Chinese are doing are the madmen who actually want to start a world war. And Khrushchev said, you cannot build um, a, a cultured existence on the basis of the ruins that would be left after world war. So 
American imperialism's use of its atomic hegemony to intimidate other peoples obviously worked on Khrushchev, but it didn't work on the, on the Chinese and that was the problem. That's why he became so hostile to the Chinese. That's why he became hostile to the Albanians or anybody else, uh, you know, among non-socialist parties who would not follow uh, follow his his, 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 his diktat. And uh, really, Khrushchev um, constantly talks of the spirit of Camp David because he met Eisenhower at Camp, Camp David. And, and of course, soon after the meeting, although Khrushchev was singing praises of the spirit of Camp David, Eisenhower denied that there had been any such, such spirit. So he was partnering with people who did not go along with him, who were prepared publicly to humiliate him. There was no, no if you like, spirit of Camp David. Imperialism was always on the lookout to do down the Soviet Union. And suddenly, um, the imperialists are, uh, uh, so Christianites and imperialists are trying to cook up a conference in, in Paris. But just a week or 10 days before that, an American spy plane, a U-2, flown and piloted by a pilot called Gary Powers. Now, you two are both very young. You wouldn't remember. I rem remember Gary Powers. He was shot down over the Soviet Union. The Americans didn't think that the Soviets had any missiles that could shot down their high-flying spy planes. And of course, um, this put an end to that proposed conference conference there. And Khrushchev had to just look extremely silly. There was no Camp David as far as imperialism was concerned. It was a relentless war without any remission, without any, um, if you like, pause in this war against, against socialism. They would not be happy till socialism was completely destroyed. And that is precisely uh, what was happening. Khrushchevites were refusing to support the national liberation movements just in case a little, a little national liberation movement should spark a conflagration which leads to a nuclear exchange between the two superpowers, i.e. the United States and the, and the, and the, and the Soviet, Soviet Union. On the basis of that, of course, the policy of the October Revolution was liquidated because you do not support the national liberations and at the same time be afraid of imperialism. Of course, you've got to keep a watchful eye on imperialism, but you cannot actually divert, sorry, divert from the general policy of proletarian internationalism and supporting the national liberation movements. Because supporting the national liberation movements is not just a favor to the oppressed nations. It is something which actually helps the socialist countries and the proletarian revolutionary movements in the, in the advanced countries. They support each other. It is a case of supporting each other. Lenin was quite right to, to say that the fight for socialism and the fight against imperialism would be a humbug and a sham if the proletariat of the advanced countries in their struggle to put an end to capitalism did not unite with hundreds and hundreds upon hundreds of millions of oppressed people who are suffering under the yoke of imperialist exploitation and colonialism, especially of their own bourgeoisie in different countries like the British ruling India and 
many, many other countries, and so were the French, and so were the Italians, and, and so, were the, so were the Germans, and they had to have a close alliance. That's precisely Lenin came up with a slogan, which up to then, that time was considered unusual. Not just workers of the world unite, but workers and oppressed peoples of the world unite, because he understood these were two contingents of the international revolutionary movement aimed at imperialism. It could not be defeated by just one of them. It had to be defeated by a joint effort. Absolutely. When I was looking at that clip, was it Peter Buck, did you say, Caleb? Uh, Tim Buck. Tim Buck, already forgotten, sorry. So he's giving that line out and totally, totally uh, dropping the duty of a Marxist, which is to explain things on the basis of, you know, the class forces and the struggle. Our historic mission is to replace imperialism with socialism, right? The world needs it. It has to be done everywhere, not just in one place. Um, you know, Stalin always talked about, of course, the, the Soviet motherland being the home of the international revolution and a, and a, and a, and a reinforcement for that revolution and, and for the nationals who passed the national liberation movements. Uh, the way that Tim Buck talked there, you know, on the one, he's, he's, a, he's, he's relying on the ignorance of the people listening to him, the majority of the people listening to him, knowing nothing about socialist science and the need for socialism. He's, he's playing on the prejudices and the fears and the experience, the recent experience of so many people, which is they've suffered. They suffered World War I and then the Great Depression, and then World War II, they've suffered and suffered and suffered. And then, you know, in, in a lot of the imperialist countries, they've been granted this, they've had this kind of a peace deal been made between the imperialists and their revolutionary-minded workers. You don't have to have a revolution, we'll give you what you would, would get out of socialism under conditions of capitalism. Go home, no more struggle, everything's fine. And he's playing to that narrative that says there's a peaceful way to develop within the system of imperialism. Now, if you understand the system of imperialism, if you understand class struggle, if you're reading Lenin, you know that's not the case. It's not possible. Stalin, right till the end of his life, was saying, you know, the peace movement may achieve temporary victories here or there if it's big enough, but the only way to get rid of war is to get rid of imperialism. So this selling of the line that we'll have peace and imperialism is a total betrayal, and it's a lie. And we only have to look at the history of the last 80 years to see what a phenomenal, catastrophic, enormous lie it really is. Um, and what a, you think of the number of lives that have been lost in wars we might have not have had to fight if the class struggle line of Stalin and Mao had been continued by the international communist movement, you know, since the end of the Second World War. Indeed. And that, you know, the Khrushchevite leadership of the Soviet Union had this illusion that a lot of anti-imperialist states fall into this belief that the imperialists target them because of what they say or even what they do, which is not the case. These, you know, the anti-imperialist countries, socialist or, or not, are targeted because they exist. That's why they're targeted. The imperialists cannot tolerate their existence. Um, and so no matter how conciliatory they are, no matter how much they, they, they grovel before the imperialists, if they exist not as, as vassals of their system, if they exist as an alternative on the global market, if they're raising their people up from poverty, they're going to be targeted. Um, and I think that that's, that's what's confused. Um, 
The other thing that I think is important to talk about is that, you know, that starting around the time of the Khrushchev secret speech, but probably a little bit prior, but most especially escalating afterwards, we saw an effort on the part of American intelligence to start courting uh, dissident elements in the USSR. Um, and that, uh, that you know, there were all kinds of efforts to, uh, to court younger people, usually people from the younger generation of Soviet leadership, that, that were described as reformist-minded. Um, meaning that they, you know, that they were they were wanting to water down Marxism and move away from Marxism. And American intelligence started having a really big interest in meeting and and subsidizing magazines and art galleries and all of that. And this stuff really escalated, of course, in the 1980s when George Soros was paying for all kinds of events and academic forums and all kinds of things. But but we saw the very beginnings of the USA saying that we can kind of we can kind of get inside the Soviet Communist Party and build up kind of pro-imperialist factions within it. And it was, it's very blatant. I mean, there's no secret about this. This wasn't like some, you know, some some kind of covert thing. There was huge efforts. I mean, if you read the writings of Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, this book I've got here, Between Two Ages, Zbigniew Brzezinski was one of the main strategists of the Cold War. And he talks about the the reformist wing of, of American uh, of, of the Soviet Communist Party and how there needs to be an effort uh, by the U.S. government to support it. And the U.S. press started speaking about these young intellectuals and, and the Hungarian revolt of 1956 and then later the Prague Spring of 1968. They start, they start t talking about how there's, there are these people within the socialist camp that, you know, that they're good, you know, that we can work with them and they're young people and they, they're not for capitalism or socialism. They're just for this new way of democracy and freedom and that what we call the new left in the West coincides with this cultivation of a layer within the Soviet Union and its leadership uh, that was not revolutionary and that the Khrushchevite element and and those kind of forces that believed in kind of not class struggle, but pacifism, right? Opposition to war on a pacifist basis rather than an anti-imperialist basis. The U.S. imperialists did everything they could to foment that. And that coincided with the, the demise of McCarthyism in the United States, because if the USA had been McCarthyist, those forces never would have trusted the United States. They needed Kennedy. They needed Lyndon Johnson. They needed the Cold War liberals to kind of facilitate the cultivation of, of a revisionist wing of the Soviet bureaucracy, which ultimately overthrew the Soviet Union. We saw the rise of Gorbachev and we saw what happened. Uh, the, the Soviet Union was overthrown because it was penetrated from within and the cultivation of the new left was very key in doing so. Paul. I, I, I think one of the things that has to be understood is it was much easier to propagate that line in the imperialist countries because the basis of opportunism is the super profits that the bourgeoisie of these countries draws from the exploitation, on top of the exploitation of their own working class, from the exploitation and oppression of the peoples in the oppressed countries. And out of those super profits, a certain proportion, which may be a very small percentage, but in absolute terms, it's a big sum, which can be used for bribing the upper layers of the working class to provide cushy jobs in trade unions, in, in, uh, as editors of newspapers, no, no, no attack on you too as editors of newspapers, but you know, as, as, as people who actually can, can, you know, they have a mode of existence, they have a mode of life, which has nothing in common, com, com, common with the working class. They are actually people who are living a petty bourgeois life, but more than that with a petty bourgeois thinking. And therefore anything that is really revolutionary strikes to them as something quite 
unnatural. You know, for example, for the leadership of the Labour Party in, in Britain, to lose your colonies was something which was a disaster for the working people. You had to defend the, defend the, defend, defend the British, British Empire. For a short while, the Communist Party of Great Britain fought against that. But after the Second World War, it also fell, fell, fell for the same thing. And the Khrushchevites, in, in, in pa parallel with, with, with their, their, their erroneous theories, they were also introducing market so-called reforms within the Soviet Union. Because what brought the Soviet Union down in the end is not just the imperialist schemes, which I know they existed. They existed from the very moment of the end of the Second World War. The big architect of these schemes was somebody who's regarded as a saint, you know, very sane person, George Kennan, who was the American ambassador to the Soviet Union. And he had the idea that we can't defeat the Soviet Union by armed combat, but we can actually corrode its ethos. We can work in that way and actually have what he called a peaceful evolution. And that's what they were hoping for. That is the idea of color revolutions. You use force where peaceful evolution does not work. The Soviet Union went really down uh, as a result, not only of imperialist efforts, but also of its marketization of the economy, whereby sufficient number of people were, uh, were there who were prepared to defend the marketization of the Soviet economy. By the time the Soviet Union fell, more than 50% of the Soviet economy, either legally or illegally, was private, privately owned. They were underground factories run by private capitalists and who were in cahoots with the high ups in the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and high ups in the, in, 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 in the, in the Soviet government. So imperialism actually won that victory because the defeat was made possible by the Communist Party of the Soviet Union itself. So it won without firing a shot. And then as soon as it fell, the imperialists swooped in on the Soviet Union and looted its wealth created by the Soviet citizens over 70 years of hard work. They took away and created 20, 30 oligarchs Suddenly you find one of them owns the whole nickel industry, like Derry Pesca. Uh, the, somebody owns the automotive industry. Somebody owns the, the, the other minerals apart, apart from, from nickel. And so you got these oligarchs ru ru ruling Russia. And of course, to make sure that the Soviet Union or some, some, something similar didn't come back, they straight away took their wealth abroad. It was deposited in the banks and now a pretense is made that after the uh, Ukraine conflict started, they are being confiscated. They are not, most of them are not being confiscated. That wealth is interwoven into the imperialist system. It cannot simply be taken away from them. They've taken half a dozen people and that's made an example. That's what we are going to do to fight against, against Russia. Well, you might as well say they're fighting against Russia by banning the broadcasting of Tchaikovsky's music. Right, that that, that 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 is not the case. But to the extent that they have actually confiscated some oligarchs, that is a tremendous help to Putin because these are not Putin's people. They are not the ones who, in the final analysis, were were actually supporters of an independent Russia. They were the ones who simply wanted to make money. 
They have no other cons cons concern that, than, than that. So the Soviet revisionists actually made possible the collapse of the Soviet Union. Their whole policy disarmed the working class. You mentioned briefly the question of war, Jyoti. Question of war is not a small question. War is not produced because two human beings cannot live together or two nationalities or two religions cannot live together. It is a war which is produced by the exploitation of one person by another and one nation by another. And it cannot be ended unless and until imperialism is ended. The Khrushchevites were saying, no, it can be ended. We can come to an agreement with the reasonable people who are leaders of the United States, from Eisenhower to John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy has got an iconic and saintly status in America and in the bourgeois world, but he was a total rascal. You know, he's the architect of the Vietnam War. He's the architect of the Bay of Pigs invasion of, of, of Cuba. He's the ar architect of the, um, of, of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. So he did everything possible to defend the interests of imperialism generally, and particularly of Ameri American imperialism. The same goes for Eisenhower. The same goes for Lyndon Baines Johnson who could kill babies today and still be described as a peace-loving by the revisionists the, 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 uh, the following day. So, you know, th this, this is what happens. The, the actually prostituting the principles of socialism, of proletarian internationalism, of Marxism-Leninism, but across the board, from the economic policy to the questions of war and peace, to the question of culture, to the question of liberalization, and all the rest of it. Gorbachev is the final outcome of that policy. It took more than 30 years for the Soviet Union to come down. And by the time Gorbachev comes, he is able to raise the white flag and openly say, we want a socialist market economy, i.e. a market economy. We do not want any of this stuff that we had before. We are going to decollectivize agri agriculture, we're going to allow private initiative because without the private initiative, it's not possible to develop an economy. Well, historically, it is so factually incorrect. As you know, during the 30s and 40s, the only economy that was advancing by leaps and bounds was the Soviet economy, while the rest of the world, i.e. capitalist world, was suffering under the hammer blows of, 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 of the recession. So we have got to be actually extremely fierce in defending our principles. Yes, we are small now as a result of these reverses, but we must go back to the basics and defend the fundamentals of Marxism-Leninism. We must be able to bear with pride the accusation. They are Talmudists. You know, these people don't understand modern life. They're Luddites. You know, they're, they're people who are orthodox. They don't understand, modern, you know, how how modern society, society works. We've got to take all this abuse, all these accusations and stand firm because even the question of language, what language you use, some people don't want to use the word imperialism. They, 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 they like to say something, something different. There's a fight even over terminology and we must never concede this fight over terminology to the opposite side. We must use the Marxist concept. You know, all bourgeois writers, writing in respectable financial newspapers, which are the financial spokesperson of the bourgeoisie in various countries, like the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times in, in, in Britain. They talk of overcapacity. 
they would never say the crisis of overproduction because crisis of overproduction is very simple for people to understand. What is this overcapacity? Which means we produce more than the market can bear. And this is the product of planning by market. The market can only plan in the way that it does. Namely, you bring your wares that you produce on private account to the market and you find out whether there are any buyers and you suddenly find there are no buyers. You go bankrupt or there are too many buyers and you haven't produced any enough. You lost the opportunity of making, 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 making a fast buck. So it goes from one excess to the other. And in the process, it of course damages the conditions of existence of, work, of, of working, working people. And these are very simple things to explain. And we must go around and explain to working people in a very simple, sim, sim, simple way, but never giving up our terminology, our philosophy, our ideology, our culture of the working class. That's the most important thing. Thanks, Dad. You touched on like about 300,000 really important things in there. And I'm conscious that we probably want to come back to the topic and we won't have a huge amount of time to go into more. There was one thing I wanted to come back on, which is about um, what happened economically with this when the Soviet Union fell and suddenly it was being the wealth that had been built up there for 70 years was being looted and basically coming out to the imperialist financial centers. You know, people forget there was a crisis, a very deep crisis of overproduction following the Second World War boom, hit in the 70s, was terrible in the 80s. The collapse of the Soviet Union was what saved the imperialist economic system uh, at that moment. Gave it a shot in the arm that lasted, mm, we have a big boost, what, 20 years? And then it starts to come down again, the same crisis back, only deeper. Uh, that we're in now they want the same thing to happen again where they want russia and china to fall into into a chaos they want to be able to divide them and loot their wealth that's their hope for saving their system right now you know and think what that has meant in terms of war devastation poverty uh you know and ransacking of the world that period that we've lived through since the collapse of the soviet union you know how many deaths how much poverty how much of it you know uh was all as a result of the the ability of the imperialists to be once more bestride the globe unopposed. I just want to come back, if it's possible, sorry, to this question of the, the Sino-Soviet split and how that affected things, because we suddenly had a situation for people who were revolutionary and trying to you know, keep to a revolutionary class line and not this pacifist class conciliation that was being preached by Khrushchev. Suddenly, Chairman Mao became the leader of the revolutionary movement in the world, the anti-revisionist movement in the world. Now that was the world that you began your political life in, Hapal. So I wonder if you could talk to us before we have to finish a little bit about that. Well, it's really, um, he, he came up to that position, not because he desired to be to, to that position. He came up with that because the Chinese Communist Party led by him was waging a struggle against Khrushchev revisionism. And in the course of that struggle, he of course assumed the leadership not only of the Communist Party of China, but also uh, of people who were anti-revisionists and China became therefore really a pole of attraction for those who, 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 who were anti-revisionists. That, that's that's what, what, what happened in, in, in this case. And Chinese gave um, whatever support they possibly could do to, to the anti-revisionists. But not everything went fine uh, because the, when the differences started with the, with the Soviet Union, um, 
some of the things that were done um, by, by, by China, in my view, were wrong. Now, for saying this, I would be condemned because, you know, anyone doesn't say anything against the Holy Grail. Um, for example, the Cubans sent, not pressed by Soviet Union, but actually out of their internationalist duty and the desire to help the Africans, they sent their soldiers first to Angola and then to Ethiopia. And in doing so, they defeated South African ra ra racism in Angola because they were trying to get hold of Angola through traitors like Jonas Savimbi and somebody else who was another uh, leader of a minor movement called the Front for, Front for National Liberation of Angola called Holden Roberto. And so they were the South Africans were given support to them. South Africans sent their soldiers. And their idea was not only to bring down Angola, but to make sure that the buffer state of Namibia between Angola and, 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 and South Africa was under their control. So South African apartheid could be saved. That was their main purpose. And that's precisely why they were supporting the Rhodesian racist regime of a tiny minority, which constituted about a quarter of a million out of a population of six million uh, uh, blacks. And of course, it didn't quite work out like that. Because what actually knocked the hell out was the national liberation movements in the Portuguese colonies brought down the fascist Portuguese regime of, uh, I think at that time, it, it, it was Caetano. Salazar had been dead, dead by that time. Brought down, and the new government that came were social democratic governments. They couldn't keep these colonies, so they agreed to in, in, the, in, the, in the independence. And of course, the independence movement gave rise, in, in the case of Angola especially, the struggle for the control of Angola between different factions. The largest faction was the MPLA movement, uh, popular movement for the liberation, liberation of Angola, headed by a giant of an intellectual called Agostino Neto. And of course, he was not much to the liking. He was friendly with Cuba. He was also friendly with socialist countries. And they didn't want him to, to, to be there. So this armed and financed Jonas Wimby so that he could carry on the, the struggle. And with, the, with his help and sending South African soldiers, they were trying to bring down the government of Angola. And it was that point that Castro sent his forces. But of course, when he sent his forces, uh, straight away, because the, the relation between China and the Soviet Union become so bitter, they regarded the, 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 the Cuban forces as mercenaries working on behalf of, behalf of Soviet social imperialism. And that was quite wrong. But the well, Soviet Union was eventually that? brought to help, help this move, the movement. It didn't actually want the Cubans to be there. They were happy later on when the Cubans went to Ethiopia um, in, 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 in support of the Mangistu government in Ethiopia. But it isn't the case that Soviet Union was trying to build an empire and it was trying to become an imperialist country. It was a country which not always happily, but reluctantly supported some national liberation struggles. For example, the Christoite didn't give much support to the Vietnamese struggle for national liberation. And there was a little bit of help, but most of the help came after the overthrow throw of, throw of Khrushchev. Uh, Brezhnev changed the policy 
of not giving any help to the national liberation movement in, in South Vietnam. But that in itself has its own story. Uh, uh, but Vietnam was one place where China had a long record of supporting the Viet Vietnamese and the Soviet Union came as well. I think both of them made a contribution to the liberation struggle in Vietnam. Can, can we use the, the, the time we have left? I can probably go for another 10 minutes. Uh, can we talk about how, you know, this revolutionary line of Mao Zedong of calling out Soviet revisionism? Unfortunately, during the 1970s, you had the, the Gang of Four and it degenerated into this nonsense about Soviet social imperialism. Um, can we talk about, about Soviet social imperialism and how in the 70s China was saying the Soviet Union was the main danger to the world, et cetera? Can we touch on that? Because unfortunately, yeah, it was right to call out Soviet revisionism, absolutely, but to align with the imperialists against it was not correct. Well, what the, so, let's see, this, this term came into use after the Warsaw Pact had intervened in the Czechoslovak, uh, in, in Czechoslovakia in order to put, put an end to the movement that was launched by Dubček, who was the general secretary of the Communist Party of Czech Czechoslovakia. Um, and when that movement was crushed, the Chinese said this was so Soviet social imperialism trying to, to grab hold of hold of other countries. Now the Soviet intervention in Czechoslovakia was no different from their intervention in Hungary, which the Chinese were very, very proud to say that they actually pushed Khrushchev to, to, to suppress, suppress that. It made no sense. It was just being very annoyed and angry with uh, Soviet Union, which by that time had become really, the relations had become very, 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 very bitter to describe I mean, there's a three-world theory. I mean, it's always attributed to Mao Zedong. I don't think he could have come up with such, such a counter-revolutionary theory. The world was divided into three worlds. There were the imperialist countries, there were the oppressed countries. Among the imperialist countries, there were middle, middling countries like European countries. And the bus course, the two superpowers, the Soviet Union and America, were the most, foremost imperialist countries and of course, Soviet social imperialism was more dangerous because it was new, it was hungry, it wanted to grab, 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 grab the whole world. Therefore, you had to f fight against that. And that line actually was not a very happy line to be associated with a country that is espousing uh, uh, the revolutionary movement or the national liberation movement, etc. And there's a tremendous evidence of collaboration between the intelligence forces uh, agencies of, of, of the United States and, and China uh, during, during the Af Afghan struggle, for example. And it's got nothing whatever to do with the Gang of Four. That was the policy that the Chinese Communist Party was doing. Um, Gang of Four by itself did not have any great particular power as its overthrow will subsequently show. I mean, I, I feel like this these these opportunist lines that started in the foreign policy of China, uh, you know, in the early 70s, they were forced on China. And that's the thing that we have to remember. The Soviet revisionists had isolated China. They couldn't get any foreign aid and any foreign investment. And after after the Cultural Revolution, you know, they spent the Cultural Revolution trying to be very, very revolutionary, but they needed some foreign investment. And unfortunately, in order to 
in order to get that foreign investment. Uh, first, you had Richard Nixon visiting China in the early 70s. Uh, and then especially after the after the death of Mao Zedong, you have the rise of Deng Xiaoping and the Kampuchea War and that that China was pushed by Soviet revisionism into a situation where in order to have some support and in order to get some foreign foreign aid, they had to uh, make a deal with the imperialists. And it was it was unfortunate. And the, the line coming out of China, you know, internationally was not a revolutionary line during these period. I mean, they were aligning with the United States in Angola, like you said, with Jonas Savimbi, uh, in many parts of the world, they were aligning with uh, the U.S. imperialists in the name of fighting Soviet revisionism. And that, you know, the Soviet Union was not an empire. I mean, it was not imperialist in the sense that it was not extracting profit from the countries it did business with. It did the opposite. It, it, it built these countries up. It, it spent a huge amount of its money to build up and develop the economies of such countries. Um, and that uh, the, the, the lie of Soviet, Soviet imperialism, they... They meant that the Soviet Union was was having political influence over the, these countries and, you know, maybe maybe weakening the revolutionary edge of their foreign policy. But but they were not uh, they were not imperialists in the sense that U.S. imperialism is. Yeah, well, absolutely. I, 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 I agree with that. But the thing is, the relations had so deteriorated. I mean, they will do just each one will do the opposite of what the other one, other one, what other one was doing, and it it, it really does not help. And it, I know that China was wanting to save itself from isolation, but China was never as isolated as the Soviet Union was when it was the only country in the world. But it actually did not give up its revolutionary policy either under Lenin or Stalin. You yep. do not allow the pressure brought to bear on you by the opposite side into actually relinquishing the revolutionary policy. Its form may change, but its essence never, 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 can, never can change. And I really also do not buy the thesis that China was in desperate need of foreign investment. Mm. And China was doing very well without foreign invest, in, investment. That's another to, 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 topic. I do not buy this thesis that China could get technology by, by cooperating with imperialism. In fact, imperialism has denied the most important technology to the Chinese, semiconductors being one example, but that's not the only example. The China, they, I mean, they have used, forget about Russia for the moment, they've used China, it's a huge market, China's huge, huge labor force to actually prolong the life of American capitalism for a long time while they've been press, pressing on the wages of the American working class, they have made its life bearable because they produce a lot of cheap goods in, in China and bring them into America. Various places like Walmart, so if you go there, 90% of the stuff you see there is produced in China and it's much cheaper than could have been produced in America or in Europe or in, or in Japan. And so the hammer blows that the American working class was suffering through, uh, through decreasing wages was slightly cushioned by cheap goods that were produced, produced in China. And of course, the profits that were re re being repatriated by American corporations back, back, back to the United, United States of, 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 of America. You know, I have a, a line that, um, you know, my comrades laugh at because almost everything that all, every problem we face 
uh, ultimately seems to go back. I blame Khrushchev. It seems to come back to to Khrushchev and what happened, you know, with that speech and with that shift in orientation uh, of the Soviet Union. You know, they Khrushchev didn't just make a speech. He, as Hapal said, instituted market reforms. You know, the first and most important and 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 kind of totemic of which was the um, handing over of the machine machine tractor stations to the collectives. You know, massive. Uh, switch in 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 outlook and and approach and uh, a massive marketization actually of Soviet agriculture right there because you've you've reintroduced commodities on a very big scale to something that had been state owned and you've simultaneously stopped the kind of motivation to keep uh, developing the cutting edge of your technology and your technique because it's expensive if you're having to pay for it it becomes expensive. So and and at the same time, the Soviet Union dropped um, its education of Marxism to the masses. You know, so they did those two things first. They weren't stupid. You know, very thought through, carefully laid. You know, plans for the reintroduction of of the market. And one of them is, you know, disabling the ability of the workers to understand what you're doing. Um, and this letting go of Marxism, you know, is a is a key factor in all of our problems, you know, the inability of the masses to hold their leaderships to account, to be able to spot what is not in their interests and and to, to create, you know, movements or, 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 or strategies to, to, to stop that in their tracks, but to find themselves going along with it. This ability of people to just, or this willingness of people to be told what Marxism says, instead of making sure that that is what Marxism says, you know, on the one hand, we have Khrushchev with his secret speech, a gift to the secret services of the West, because right off the back of that, they were busy then creating Trotskyite organizations all over the Western countries, because they had the, they had the whole manifesto created for them right there. Trotsky was nobody at the end of the Second World War, and after Khrushchev's speech, he was a big man again, a leader of the revolution, precisely because of what was done there. And then the injection of cash you know, by the secret services in the West, like let's found a new revolutionary movement, you know, to, to catch the fervor, the revolutionary fervor of young people who want socialism and misdirect it. And I feel like, I don't know, but it feels like something similar happened around the Sino-Soviet split in terms of theory, right? It's like Chairman Mao, there's certain things he did that planted like time bombs in our movement. And I don't know if all of them came from Mao or if some of them are just attributed to Mao. But for example, this idea of um, social imperialism, you know, totally unscientific. Mm -hmm. There's not a shred of Leninism to just make a statement like it's an insult. Now, we've we've talked about the context. The context is very important. Ultimately, Khrushchev is to blame. But Chairman Mao, to come out with a statement like that, with all the ramifications it's had since then of people, like it started a fashion for people using this term imperialism just as a swear word, you know, someone I don't like, and then acting on it. They're my big enemy. They're an imperialist, you know, and you don't have to show, according to Lenin, how does this country fulfill the definition of imperialism? You just chuck the word around, you know, and then we're like, oh, we can't identify with imperialist type of thing, you know. The science is gone. Um, and, Sorry, Hapal. Can, can I make one point before uh, Caleb's got to go? And and, yeah. and, and, and and that is, one of the things that really made the Chinese very apprehensive about the Soviet Union, there was, a sh for a short while, the idea floated. The Americans approached the Soviet leadership 
whether they would not collaborate together in a joint attack on the Chinese nuclear installations. And uh, this, of course, caused huge concern, concern in, in, in China. And that may partly have, have persuaded the Chinese to actually come closer to the, to the United States. The way they came, it, it, it's an open question whether it was the right thing to do. But that was some, some, something they did. And then on top of that, they, they had problems with Tibet. When the Tibetan reactionaries rose up in, rebe in rebellion, it was crushed by the People's Liberation Army very quickly. And they were in control of Lhasa. Dalai Lama, with a few of his acolytes in disguise, fled to India. And ever since then, he and his few hundred followers have been lodged in a place in India called Dharam, Dharam, Dharamsala. It's a bloody nest of CIA, CIA agents. And it was one of the most stupid things that the Indian government did, giving them a home so that they can start their anti-China campaign. Then, of course, there was a border war, a very short one between India and China, which was no fault, fault of China. But all the same, uh, crushed whites, instead of supporting a fellow socialist country, um, almost, almost, were on the on the on the on the side of, side of the Indians at the height of these troubles. Soviet Union granted a loan of three hundred twenty million dollars to 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 India, a huge sum of money for, for for those days. Those billions hadn't come into being at that that particular particular time, and so there was really the Chinese had a feeling they were being encircled by India on the one hand, Soviet Union on the other, America on the other as though everybody was ganging up against China. And of course, the Nixon administration and Henry Kissinger, the Secretary of State, used that very, very cleverly in order to cause a split between these two giants of the movement, because that's the only way they could be weakened. And that is something very important to understand that there were other aspects 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 of that that as well caleb yeah i would agree and that um you know that the late cold war i think you know in my writing i often divide the cold war between the early cold war and up until you know around the time the usa starts you know really suffering a defeat in vietnam you then have the late Cold War and that the late Cold War U.S. foreign policy was defined by manipulating communists against each other. During the early Cold War, it was just we want to defeat all the communists. But in the late Cold War in the 70s and 80s, uh, the U.S. imperialists were very much covertly arming and supporting some communists against others uh, in order to manipulate. It was a much more effective and sinister strategy. Uh, for for weakening the global communist movement. And the most blatant example is 1978 when, uh, you know, you had Pol Pot, who was being backed by the United States. I mean, the United States was covertly arming him and supporting him, <laughs> attack Vietnam in the name of, you know, Vietnam being allies of the Soviet social imperialists or whatever. And then you have China attacking Vietnam to defend Cambodia and Pol Pot. And we have a bloodbath where Communists are killing other communists uh, and the imperialists are covertly manipulating it and then sitting back and laughing. Um, and that that became the overall strategy during the, you know, after the USA was defeated in Vietnam, Brzezinski and others came in there and they said, all right, instead of directly just bombing the hell out of countries and killing millions of people that alienates us, 
Let's instead start covertly sending arms to some communists. Let's prop up the Euro communists in Western Europe to sound like communists, but serve imperialism. Let's fund the Trotskyites. Let's manipulate uh, the pro-China factions in Africa against the pro-Soviet factions. And that was ultimately key in, in the U.S. imperialists bringing down the Soviet Union was the strategy of manipulation. I'm really conscious. Thanks, Caleb. I mean, that's there's so much in there as well, isn't there? I'm conscious that we probably need to finish. So, Hapal, uh, do you want to give a last word before we sign off for today? Well, I, 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 I do because I, th my, and this is probably a late renegacy on my part. I happen to believe that the Soviet Union, run by the revisionists, even run by the revisionists, was a better place than what came out afterwards. And yep. The, the, the China today is not exactly run by revolutionaries of the type that we we will approve of, you know, and who cares about what we approve of and not. But the main thing is they're able to maintain the Chinese state. They still have a Chinese Communist Party and they, as a result, incur the wrath of imperialism because they are maintaining their party. And having learned from the Soviet lesson, they haven't denounced Mao Zedong the way that the Khrushchevite denounced Stalin. They still keep Mazatum as the iconic leader. His picture is in Tiananmen Square. His picture is on the Chinese currency. They still talk about thought, you know, to what extent they follow his economic policies, etc. Um, that, that, that is a different matter. But it's a good thing that they're able to do that. And precisely for that reason, I am personally, as is my party, a supporter of China, we want China to exist. Because if China was to collapse, it will put the revolutionary movement further back by another 30 years. And, you know, and, and we, we don't want that. The very existence of China is actually a hindrance to imperialist brigandage. And it is an encouragement to other people to do, 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 do something against, against imperialism. And even capitalist Russia is not my idea of socialism. It's a capitalist Russia. But I support Russia standing up for our national rights against the imperialist proxy war that is being waged by imperialism, headed by US imperialism through the Ukrainians, where they're prepared to fight to the last drop of the last U U Ukrainian by funding it, by send sending weapons, etc., with a view to actually destroying Russia, dismembering it into six or seven easily digestible parts so that they could have a fine time looting whatever is left of Russia after the defeat of the, these, uh, of, the, of, the, of, of, the, of the Soviet Union. And that is one of the reasons that we support um, Russia fighting against imperialism because imperialism defeat would be a tremendous humiliation for imperialism and a tremendous defeat for imperialism, which would actually encourage the struggle against imperialism by weakening it further. That's the only way of defeating imperialism. It cannot be defeated by sermons and good lessons and, 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 and then saying, you've got to be on your best behavior. Thanks, Rapal. Caleb, last word? I think we should probably just wrap it up here. Uh, but this was a great discussion. Uh, thank you very much. Thank Shall you. We Shall we conclude? Yeah. All right. Very good.
Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history, and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe, and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources, and we need worker support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.